Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, Meister fans. Welcome to the show. This is Ben. Hey, guys. It's Russell. Today, we have Nikki Stone with us. At the 1998 Olympic Winter Games in Nagano, Japan, Nikki became America's first ever Olympic champion in the sport of inverted aerial skiing. What made this accomplishment even more impressive is that less than two years earlier, a chronic back injury prevented her from standing, let alone walking or skiing. Some doctors told her that she may never ski again. Throughout her career, Nikki earned 35 World Cup medals and 11 World Cup titles. She has made appearances on Late Night with David Letterman, The Today Show, Good Morning America, ESPN, CNN, and more. Nikki is the author of When Turtles Fly, Secrets of Successful People Who Know How to Stick Their Necks Out, which was recently named an Amazon bestseller. Nikki, we are excited to have you today. Welcome. I'm excited to join you guys. (laughs) Yeah, Nikki, thanks so much for coming on the show. We have a ton to talk about today. Hopefully we can fit it into a half hour. But before we talk about your career and some of your accomplishments, could you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself personally? Sure. I grew up as a gymnast and I used to ski recreationally. And when I was about 18 years old, I found aerial skiing and it really hit home to my passions and really fell in love with the sport. And growing up, my mother told me that I could accomplish anything if I wanted to, as long as I followed what she called the turtle effect. (laughs) And she said, you have to make sure that you're soft on the inside, you have a hard shell and you're willing to stick your neck out. And so it was the perfect fit for me to find that soft inside by following aerial skiing, fell in love with the sport and got to go to my first Olympics in 1994. And the two years later, I had a chronic spinal injury, as you mentioned earlier, and really it almost took me out of the sport. And I had to do a lot of soul searching and I had to build up that hard shell in order to come back, um, came back 18 months before the Olympics to go out there, stick my neck out, and win America's first (laughs) gold medal in aerials. You're sticking your neck out, you're flipping your neck over, (laughs) you're doing a bunch of different things. For our listeners, if you aren't familiar with this sport for some reason, aerial skiing is, I think, a combination of gymnastics and skiing and all sorts of things. Nikki flies off the jump and flips and spins and twists and then eventually comes back down to land on Earth. How high are you going when you jump? Well, I'll, I'll give you a whole visual of the jump. Oh, um, good. Imagine starting um, about 50 to 70 yards away from a jump. You go barreling down it at about 45 to 50 miles per hour. <laughs> you hit a 12-foot tall wall that is about 65 degrees steep. It sends you flipping and twisting 50 feet into the air, which is the height of a five-story building. (laughs) And as you said, you hope that you land on your feet on a 45-degree steep hill to ski down. And it's something that wasn't an easy accomplishment for someone who is actually afraid of heights. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So 
so it was it was a great exhilaration but you know i really was always scared too yeah, and I'd watched one of your videos uh, talking about a similar experience to this. You went into a little bit more detail with talking about your coach and actually mid-air, your coach can give you signals or yell things at you to make certain adjustments. Does that actually work? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, we were in the air for about three seconds. So a lot of people think you don't have time to make adjustments, but you really can make sure that, you know, he can tell you to pull your knees in to rotate more or elongate your body to slow down your rotation. He can tell you when the ground is coming up and things like that. And um, it was a funny story is over the years, we heard the Japanese coach calling out to his athletes and he was saying the same word time and time again. And we started wondering, you know, what's the translation for this word? And uh, the Japanese weren't the strongest athletes on the tour at the time. And the, the reason could be because of this coach, because the word he was calling out to them was danger. <laughs> and uh, so I always say that I'm glad that I live here in the United States where coaches tell us specifically what to do to get to our feet onto the ground. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so what I find really interesting about a sport like this is that, like you said, things happen over three seconds. So you have to you have to be basically perfect. You can't really mess something up. I mean, for you to dominate the sport the way that you did, if you look at comparable sports, or maybe not comparable sports, but major sports like football, Peyton Manning can throw one bad pass and still have a really good game. You can't really do that. You have to be perfect. This just seems like a, a really weird concept to me. Yeah, and, I, and it really, it was. And, you know, I remember after I won the Olympics, I kept saying to my boyfriend at the time, I said, I can't believe I just won the Olympics. And he said, you know, you were you were so dominant in the sport, though. You came in and number one, you won five World Cups leading into the Olympics. And I said, but anything could go bad on, on any day. You know, there's so many factors that come into play, you know, not only in your own mind, but, you know, with the wind, with the weather conditions, with how you're running, how you feel that day. So it really, I really had to make sure my mental game was on and having a background in sports psychology, eventually going on to get my master's degree in it. It really helped me be able to conquer a lot of those other distractions and obstacles to be able to come and do my sports at a level that I felt that I could do well year after year. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting too, because you were one of the pioneers for women and for men in the sport of aerial ski jumping. What was it that made you that much better than the rest of the world? Um, you know, I, part of it, I guess, is that I never considered myself better than the rest of the world. It was something that I always felt that I had to strive to do more. And I, I'm someone who is very persistent, you know, as, as a kid. And even to this day, I have family members that don't want to play mini golf with me because <laughs> <laughs> I get so competitive. And, you know, it's something that I wouldn't give up and I'd always push further. You know, um, the men were doing harder tricks. And to me, I would try to emulate what they were doing rather than just saying this is where the women are at right now. And you know, in a sport like aerials, there's a lot of fear involved and, you know, people can start talking to each other and getting in each other's mind and, and really playing tricks to think, you know, this is something I shouldn't be doing and try to hold myself back. Um, but for me, I was always striving to win that Olympic medal. I was five years old when I told my parents I was going to win the medal someday and uh, I wasn't going to give up at any point along the way. You know, it was always something that was driving me. To, to push and to persevere. So I would love to talk more about 
the ski jumping itself, but we do have a ton that we need to cover. So I want to start to move to your career after the ski jumping. And the first thing that I think of is you have this skiing career full of so much pressure. And I mean, I'm sure you're busy and this is pretty dangerous stuff. So after living something so intense, I'm guessing there was a void that needed some filling. What did you do once your career was over? Well, it was actually hard. Um, as I said, I, I went and I got a master's in sports psychology. And one of the things I had to do in order to write, graduate with honors is I had to write a thesis. And I wrote the thesis on elite female athletes retirement from sports. Mm. And I really felt like I have a grasp on what to do uh, because I'd done this research. I understood what it took. Um, you needed a new focus in your life in order to excel um, in the rest of your life. And I still went through a period, regardless of all the information I had gained, um, of being able to find that new exhilaration in my life. And it probably took me two years till I finally got to the place where I found something that almost scared me as much as Ariel's did and excited me as much as Ariel's did. And that was doing motivational speaking. Uh, because when you get in front of a room full of 2,000 people, and you are performing and delivering something, and not only is this affecting you, but it's actually affecting everyone that's sitting in that room. It really can put a lot of nerves on, but then having people come up to you afterwards and say they're going to change something in their life because of something you said, it can be incredibly rewarding and exhilarating. And it was something, you know, I said it took me a couple of years, but it's, you know, to this day, I still absolutely love speaking. And it was a perfect transition for me from aerial skiing. So you talked about those two years where you weren't really sure. I mean, you go from doing something that's so goal oriented, right? You have this goal, win the gold medal, and there are steps that you can take to reach that goal. But when you don't know what your goals are or what you want to do, I guess, with your life, how do you find that? Well, for one, you can set short-term goals no matter what the, the outcome is. And it, it really is harder setting the goals when you don't know what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And for me, that philosophy, like I said, that my mom used when I was little of making sure I was like a turtle and first finding that soft inside, you know, it was something that drove everything else. You know, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, then it's hard to build a hard shell. It's hard to stick your neck out. It's hard to overcome adversities and take risks. You know, you really have to make sure you have passion for what you're doing. And that's why I didn't jump into the first job I had and just pursued it the rest of my life. I wanted to make sure I found something I loved. And um, I knew the rest would follow once I had that in place. And so it it really is hard without the goals, without something that's driving you. And uh, I, I just really recommend to people that you have to find the passion in what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it's looking back to the first day you started, whether it's changing up your routines, you're not doing the same thing. It's making sure that there's some kind of passion so that you can drive towards um, what you really want to accomplish. You made all these key decisions after you finished your career. You won your gold medal and then you continued on with your master's degree, like you said. Do you think that would have been a more difficult decision for you if you didn't actually win gold in the Olympics? It's funny. um, I I talked with a mentor who was a sports psychologist of mine. He actually helped me come back from my spinal injury. And one thing he always drove home is that people that are elite in their sports and within the business world as well, they're always striving for new goals. So no matter what goal you reach, there's always something more 
you can get to. So really, you shouldn't be reaching all your goals. Mm. It's, you know, my friend is Bonnie Blair, who won five Olympic gold medals. You know, and if I compare myself to her, I've accomplished <laughs> nothing. <laughs> so um, really, it's great, you know, that I achieved the gold medal and it was something I was striving for. But, you know, I, I wanted to be able to come back and win two gold medals. But unfortunately, because of my spinal injury, my back, I wouldn't be coming back to the sport again. And so I had to adjust my goals and make sure there were new ones and start working towards those goals and, and realize that we always have to make adjustments if there's things that, you know, really are out of our realm and make sure we're striving towards something that, you know, not not always realistic, but know that if you're, you're reaching too many goals, then you're not setting them high enough. Exactly. Okay. I really like where this is going because this is a topic that I find really, really interesting. And I've talked to Russell about it before, but it's this whole concept of how humans are, I guess it's human behavior to be loss averse, right? So the way that I would explain this or the way that it has been explained is someone who loses $100 will lose more satisfaction than a person gains satisfaction from gaining $100, right? So if we apply that to goal setting, it means that people would rather avoid missing their goals than exceeding their goals. Is that That's right. I'm sure you're familiar with this. So I Yeah, mean, I actually, in my speeches, I say a quote by Wayne Gretzky, and he says, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. Hmm. And we have to take those shots in order to get the accomplishments. So if, if humans are loss averse, right, and they don't want to avoid missing their goals, how do you set the right goals? Or how do you make sure that you're reaching and still missing goals, like you said before? Well, you have to have short-term and long-term goals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if you're not reaching any goals, then, of course, you're going to be discouraged. Then you're depressed. <laughs> you know, so you have to make sure that they're realistic, but that they're stretch goals. So, you know, you can reach short-term goals along the way. You know, you may have a goal for the day and a goal for the week, the month, and the year, and your lifetime. And so it's something that's always pushing you. But understand that there are going to be certain goals along the way that you're not going to reach and make some of them attainable and some of them something that you're going to push towards and realize, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to get to that point. But it's it's again has to be something you're passionate about so that's going to keep you driving um, towards that passion. Yeah. And I mean, you have so many great ideas and so many things. Is that what triggers you to write a book is this passion and you need to write it down. You need to be able to share it with as many people as possible. You know, the philosophy was something that always drove me. And after I started speaking, I realized there's so many parallels between sports and every other career, whether you're pursuing an acting career, whether you're an artist, whether you're a cook, whether you're a mathematician, a Nobel Prize winner, um, someone in the military, in the service, there were so many avenues that um, really they paralleled. And so in the book, you know, I started thinking of all these people that are successful, you know, and I have 40 contributors from all different fields. And I realized the lessons that I had learned along the way that my mother taught me, maybe similar lessons that someone learned, you know, like Tommy Hilfiger is in my book, um, or Prince Albert of Monaco, Dr. Stephen Covey, uh, Sean White, Lindsey Vaughn, all these people may have similar things in, in making sure that they're finding that in so soft inside or hard shell and sticking their necks out. And really, it's amazing to see how their stories and, and their success has helped them in, in a similar way that 
I found my success in order to win an Olympic gold medal. Yeah, it is a neat collection full of these little stories and then applying those to your everyday life or to whoever's life. One question I had, the subtitle is Secrets of Successful People Who Know How to Stick Their Necks Out. How do you define what success is? Um, I don't. Everyone has to themselves. Hmm. And you have to understand how you became successful. And, and one thing I found really interesting in the work of my book is I would ask the people, you know, how they found success. And there was one group of individuals, you know, and I have people from all different fields, Fortune 500 CEOs, entrepreneurs, Nobel Prize winners, military successes. And there was one group that every time they could tell me why they were most successful. And that group was the athletes. And I realized that athletes are continually looking at why they're successful. They have coaches to help them look at why they're successful. They will watch videos. They review every day the things they did well and need to improve. And so they have a really good grasp of why they found their success. And, you know, when I speak to businesses now, you know, I have them try to find the different avenues that help them find their success every day and if they can look back and repeat the things that were working for them the day they were most successful it would give them a lot of confidence moving forward and so we have to make sure we look back and and keep notes or journals or or have a good understanding of the areas we found success and how we could replicate that this is all great stuff that you're you're telling our listeners and you're a mother now. You have a two-year-old daughter, I think I heard. Two-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter. Oh, two-year-old son, five-year-old daughter. She was at one point two years old. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so how important is athletics going to be for your kids mm -hmm. going on into the future? Um, for me, I want them to be active. You know, a lot of people say, do you want them to pursue aerial skiing? And I, I always say, I hope not. <laughs> um <laughs> Because it's one thing doing it yourself, it's another one thinking of your two-year-old going out there someday and launching 50 feet in the air. Um, and it's, it's probably a control issue as well in myself. But I really want them to have passions for what they pursue, you know, whether it be academics, whether it be sports, whether it be some kind of arts. You know, my son at two years old, I can already tell that he is going to be an enormous risk taker. And <laughs> My, my daughter can be a bit more cautious, but, you know, she loves the arts and may be a, a strong dancer. And I don't think it's important that they pursue sports per se, but I want to make sure that they're active, they have an active lifestyle, um, that they're keeping themselves healthy, but they pursue what their goals are and they're not my goals. You know, your career is kind of defined by your gold medal. It shouldn't be, but that is that has helped. You're known as Nikki Stone gold medal aerialist. So mm -hmm. when we think about it, there are probably other people out there who barely miss the gold and their careers aren't defined by that. Do you ever look back and think, where would I be if I didn't win gold? Yeah, yeah. Um you know, it really has opened doors. You know, I don't know if I would have pursued motivational speaking, but there are so many incredible speakers out there that don't have a gold medal. That's absolutely true, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I think that there's certainly possibilities, but, you know, if you look back at anything in your life, you know, if I hadn't married this person, if I yeah. hadn't had this child at this time, if I hadn't gone to this school, you know, it can always make changes in your life. And, you know, I just look back and I'm thankful that, I had the know-how to push myself to 
achieve accomplishments. You know, I, I still, if I hadn't won the gold medal, I'd still be a world champion. I still would have gone to two Olympic Games. And these are great accomplishments that I think would give me confidence moving forward. You're so logical. I, I really like talking to people who have psychology backgrounds and then economics backgrounds too, because I think that those people think very logically. Um, yeah. So I'm enjoying talking to you right now, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> so Ben and I were a little bit worried about this next question because you have been out of the sport for how many, 15 or so years? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we weren't sure if you were still a, a really extreme skier or what you were doing, but we really want a gear recommendation. For our listeners, what would be the best piece of gear or item that the uh, listeners would need? Okay, so with aerial skiing, our skis are 160 centimeters, and they're probably appropriate for teenagers and not adults. <laughs> and I doubt your listeners are going out and going off a jump and launching themselves. I 150 certainly hope air. not. <laughs> <laughs> I do still ski. And, um, you know, I love my head skis and they're, they're something that's great, but, uh, probably the piece of gear that I always bring with me. And, uh, it's something that I find is most valuable to me pursuing my sports and, and also in the business world is, is a super ball. And the reason behind it is when I injured my back, I had 10 doctors tell me I would never ski again. I had 18 months to the next Olympic games. The thing that helped me was a Super Bowl because there was a quote by General George S. Patton that says, success is how high you bounce after you hit rock bottom. And I figured if I was going to be hitting rock bottom, I better be ready to bounce. And that Super Bowl reminded me to have that hard shell I needed. And it was a way to bounce back and to make sure that I was going to be strong when I did hit the bottom. And it was just that visual reminder I needed so that I could always bounce back. And it's something to this day um, I have Super Bowls all around my house. I have it in my car. I have it in my bag and um, pull them out. And even my kids do now <laughs> uh, find themselves that, you know, there's going to be a low point you hit in a day. There's going to be a low point you hit in a week or month. And you can pull it out and remind yourself to be ready to bounce. So uh, if anyone considers a Super Bowl piece of gear, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I recommend people going out and getting their own Super Bowl so, so that you're ready in those moments when you need it. When you're dropping it, are you throwing it at the ground or do you just drop it and let gravity take over? Um, I guess I'm, I'm typically throwing it. You got to um, throw it because you, right you go now. down hard and then it goes up even higher. Exactly. Right? If my mom gave me a Super Bowl when I was two and five years old, she would probably take it back after one day. because. It would uh, be- you know what? I love them bouncing around the house and they really do. They throw them everywhere and, you know, that's part of the fun. If I can give them those lessons that they take with them forever, then so be it if there's balls bouncing everywhere. <laughs> Did you ever talk to Super Bowl about a yeah. potential sponsorship? <laughs> no, I haven't talked to them, but I, I probably should because I bring <laughs> them with me to speeches and uh, I hand them out to everyone so that they have that reminder. So, you know, maybe it is something I should pursue. That's free marketing for them. Anyway, to close our conversation, Nikki, we want the listeners to walk away with something, you know, that they can really implement into their own lives and find success. So I want you to tell us one thing, one trait, one quality, one, maybe one thing that you say to yourself on a daily basis that really contributes to your success. Uh, well, I, I guess there's, there's a quote that I love, and um, I actually have it at the bottom of all my emails that I send out to people. And it says, life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but the moments that take our breath away. And it's something that is always 
compelled me and propelled me in my daily actions. And I try to remember it and listen to it and look at it every morning to make sure that I'm not living each day just as a day, but I'm trying to make the most of that day by making it eventful. And so I I try to think of taking my breath away, having those risky moments, sticking my neck out uh, like a turtle so that I can go out there and achieve great things. Very cool. Russell, you and I are going to start seeking more opportunities that will take our breath away. Yeah, I'm going to get a... uh, (laughs) Bouncy ball, too. You, Russell, you take away my breath every day, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> anyway, Nikki, thanks so much for joining us today. For our listeners, you can find highlights of today's episode at our website, mtnmeister.com. You can find out more about Nikki at nikkistone.com, where you can also buy her book. And for our listeners, Nikki is doing a giveaway for one copy of When Turtles Fly. In order to win, go to her Meister profile page on our website. Use the click to tweet feature. We will pick one person that used the click to tweet feature. Make sure you follow us on Twitter so we can direct message you if you win. Check it out. And Nikki, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was awesome to have you. Thank you guys so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you everyone for listening to Nikki Stone's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Russell and I definitely did. There's a lot to learn from Nikki. Hard shell, soft inside, stick your neck out. Russell, I hope you're having a fantastic time on your adventure. I miss you a lot. Do you miss me? I miss showering. (laughs) Who do we have next time? So on our next episode, we have Eric Larson on the show. And I don't know if you guys have picked this up yet, but I love to make unrealistic comparisons. And tomorrow's episode, I actually compare a bachelor party I went on to a polar expedition. It may seem far-fetched, but I think there's some logic there. So listen to find out more tomorrow.